Would you turn with me to John chapter 3? We are in John 3.16, reading down to verse 21. We've come to the, uh, what's kind of the, the theme of the Christian life, John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have, be, have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because your word communicates truth to us. And your word tells us that you are a God of love and that you show your love for us by giving us your son. God, is such a glorious passage, but there are also difficult truths in this small section. Father, so I pray that you would help me to communicate your word with love, and with boldness. God, and we pray that you would take your truth and implant them deep in our hearts. And that we would worship you because of your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we walked through chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and the point of that conversation essentially is for Jesus to help Nicodemus to understand the identity of Jesus Christ, that is, as the Son of God. Nicodemus had his own, has his own his, uh, interpretation of Jesus. He's, you're a teacher sent from God, a teacher with whom God abides. But Jesus seeks to clarify that. He says, I'm not just a teacher, but I am the very Son of God. I am the image of of the invisible God. In that conversation, there's also some clarification about what it means to be uh, a kingdom, uh, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That is that one must be born again in order to, to see or to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a, a work of regeneration. Regeneration is the work of the spirit of God upon an individual, an instantaneous work of the spirit of God where one becomes dead to their old self and becomes a new creation by the Spirit of God. 
and then become a child of the living God, an automatic citizen of the kingdom of God. And so that's what, and so that's kind of what the, uh, that conversation is about. Right, so Jesus Christ is not just a teacher, he's not just a prophet, but he is the very son of God. And if you lose the identity of Jesus Christ and you lose regeneration, right, you lose because you have to believe in Jesus as the son of God in order for one to become born again to see the kingdom of God. So if you lose the identity of Christ, you lose the gospel. If you lose the gospel, then you lose any hope of salvation. So you can't have eternal life apart from regeneration. You can't have that regeneration unless one believes in Jesus Christ as the son of the living God who died on the cross for sins. So that's kind of the gist of verses 1 through 15, and that takes us to John 3, 16, which I think is, which verses 1 through 15 helps to bring greater clarification to John 3, 16 and following. And so, as we proceed through this, through this section, I just have three points. We'll begin with God's love for the world, then God's condemnation of the world, and then lastly, God's light to the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So that statement alone is incredibly important, but where this, some, there's several different words that are incredibly important for our understanding of John, of John, of the gospel, actually. And so we're gonna, I'm going to kind of focus on several of these words not extensively, but it says, God so loved the world, right, that God loved. And that tells us something about God and what he expects. So 1 John 4, 7 tells us, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God is love, the scriptures tell us, that God is love. God communicates love. God displays love. I mean, just think that the God of the universe who created all things is a God of love. He's not a God of hatred. He's not a God of anger. He's not God who is evil, but he is a God of love. And before he created all things, he had perfect love within the fellowship of the Trinity with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So, then, so one thing that we need to understand about the gospel is that God did not create us because he needed us. God did not create us because he, there was a void in his heart that he was meaning to fill. God did not create us because he was wanting more love in his life. He already had perfect love with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But he created man in his image in order to glorify God. And love, love creates. Love creates opportunities. Love creates memories. Love creates happiness. Love creates children to share in that love. Love creates joy and happiness. Right, that's why if you've ever been on a mission trip or seen stories, if you're in third world countries and you have these kids in orphanages who don't have anything at all, but they are the happiest kids in the world because they have people, they have someone who loves them. So God is a God of love and he communicates love, he displays love. And that love also tells us that there is an expectation. Love is not, 
is never without expectations. In your most loving relationships, there's always expectations. A wife should expect that her husband be faithful and to love her and vice versa. In close friendships and best friend relationships, there's an expectation that you care for one another, that you take care of each other, you look out for each other. Children should always expect that their parents will love them and support them. Right? Those, those expectations are not in any way intended to, to be a way of earning love. Love that has to be earned results in merit or reward, and that is not love. And you know this because when you have children, right, when you have an infant, an infant is incapable of reciprocating any love towards the parent because they just don't know. Right? But you still love them despite the fact that they can't reciprocate that. Not yet, anyway, but as they grow older, as they mature, well, then they learn to love primarily from their parents, and they learn to reciprocate that love. But children should always expect parents to love them. You say the same thing with loving relationships with the spouse or best friends. Even when a child goes wayward and becomes rebellious, beyond control, right, you can still say that I love you, even though there is an expectation that they would reciprocate that love, but they're kind of doing the opposite. They're not reciprocating the love, but they're hurting you. And that is why it hurts, because there is, there is an expectation that they love you in return, but when you don't receive that love, well, then it hurts. In the most warm and devoted relationship, it's not unreasonable or irrational to expect that love will always be reciprocated. And we become upset or saddened when it's not reciprocated. And this is where people get tripped up in John 3.16. Right? It's one of the most wonderful passages in all the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And yet at this point, people tend to forget or don't realize or think that there's an, ex an exception to the rule. That when it says that God so loved, that there isn't this expectation that we would reciprocate that love. But the love of God, though it loves us, right, despite our sins, despite our failures and our weaknesses, it comes with an expectation. And instead, some will see it as an excuse to be passive and never reciprocate that love. Right, and you can and should love someone despite their faults and weaknesses, but it is never without expectations. Right, unless someone is physically unable or mentally unable to reciprocate that love. But for the world, there is no excuse. The world is expected to reciprocate the love of God displayed in the giving of His Son. So God so loved that He gave His Son. God sent his son into the world. And one of the most tangible ways that you can express your love for someone is by giving them a gift. It's not the only way, but it is a way. And God gave to the world something that is incomparable to anything else, something that is of infinite value, and that is his own son. He gave him, that is the incarnation. He gave him to the world and even gave him up to crucifixion for the world. And it is in the Son, then, that we are called to believe. That is how we reciprocate that love. To believe in Jesus points to the crucifixion, like Jesus alluded to in verse 14 in that conversation with, with Nicodemus. God loved the world, and as a result, God gave His Son to the world so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is so that sinners do not perish. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to believe later on. But in the passage, it says, uh, it says perish, right? That, that indicates that, that the world is in a dangerous position. That is, that they're in, in danger of perishing. And to perish means to be separated eternally from the presence of God and be given over to an eternal darkness and an eternal fire. And that is why we need to be born again. This is why the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is helpful. Because it clarifies for us, what does it mean to believe? Because without being born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the only way that you can enter the kingdom of God is by being born again is to believe. Believe in the Son that has been given to you as a display of the love of God. And so it tells us that man is unfit to see the kingdom of God. That's why man has to be born again, and no one understands that better than God himself. And that's why he sends his son into the world, so that those who, so that people would believe in the son and be born again to see the kingdom of God. So the only acceptable and expected means of reciprocating such a dramatic love of God is to reciprocate that love by believing in the Son of God. God saves perishing sinners through the blood of His Son, and His purpose in giving His Son for salvation is found in verse 17. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Right, we should be surprised that the creator of all things would send his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Right, you should expect that the, that the creator of all things would come into the world to, rebe- to, re- to rebuke his rebellious creation. Right? You should expect that the, that the son of God would come into the world not to save it, but to obliterate it. You would expect that the God who gave man the Ten Commandments and gave man the, the conscience to understand right from wrong would come not as a Savior, but as a judge. Exodus 34, 6 tells us that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Yes, God is a God of love. God is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he is also a God who is righteous and is a judge and will by no means clear the guilty. Right, that's what the scriptures say about God. And so it should be shocking to us that God would send his son into the world not to condemn it, but instead to save it. So rather than taking the world to court and pronouncing the verdict of guilty, instead God provides the world a second chance by sending his son into the world in order that the world might become right with God. However, even though the passage says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, it does not mean that there is no condemnation whatsoever. But what Christ came to do was to spare the world of a condemnation that is already there, but has yet to be fully realized. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So both John 3.16 and John 3.18 clarify who can be saved from perishing, and that is those who believe. It doesn't say that all without exception, but only those who believe. Now, if the entire world believe in the Son of God, well then, does that mean that the entire world is saved? Yes, if they believe. If they believe. But if God so loved the world, that's what the passage says, right? God is a God of love, right? I mean, you just read that passage in verse John 4, that God is a God of love. It says here that God so loved the world. If God is a God of love, why isn't then the entire world, without exception, just saved? Why doesn't God just save everyone apart from faith or believing? Well, here's kind of my attempt to answer that question. It's going back to love. Because love comes with expectations. Such a love from God should compel us to reciprocate that love that he displays in giving his son. John 15, 10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Applying Applying Christ's salvation to all people without exception, apart from believing or hearing or even knowing the gospel, does not guarantee that people will love God in return, but might only give them an excuse to continue to live in a disrespectful manner towards God. Only a person who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God can actually love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, so then why not... Just make all men regenerate. Why not just make all people in the world, without exception, automatic believers in Jesus and regenerate so that they automatically love the Lord their God like they should be, like they were created to? Because although God is a sovereign God and he directs all things, including our very lives, according to the counsel of his will and for his eternal purposes, he will not usurp or intrude upon man's free will. The reason why faith or to believe is the way of salvation is because when you believe, you're making a choice. God is not going to make that choice for you or for anyone else. He's not looking for mindless drones to, to worship him and to love him out of just sheer duty. But the choice is given because those who choose to believe do so because they, they behold the glory of Jesus Christ. They behold the undeserved grace of God and they are so attracted to it that they cannot run away from it. They cannot resist it. Now, it's important to add that I do believe that the scriptures teach that God does predestine, that God does choose people to salvation. That's in Ephesians chapter 1, that's in Romans chapter 8, and even in John 6. It teaches that. But that is not in tension with man's responsibility to choose. It doesn't usurp man's responsibility. It doesn't take away from man's free will for God to choose people for salvation. It doesn't take away your choice to believe. You're still called to believe, to make the decision to follow Jesus. If I was coming over your house for lunch... Right, and you bought me strawberry cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, which is my absolute favorite. 
And I came over to your house, and you surprised me with it. You put it right in front of me like, hey, this is for you. Does that take away from my free choice? Now, would I be upset with you because I didn't ask you to do this for me? I didn't choose for you to do this, right? I'd be actually ecstatic that you did that for me. And you knew to do that for me because you knew me, you loved me, you knew that I, this was my favorite. And when you put it in front of me because I love it so much, I can't resist it, right? I've got to, I have to eat it. That doesn't take away from my free will. And so it's the same with the Lord. God loves you and he gives you what you needed most, though you at, some, at one point did not even realize that you needed this, and that is the salvation of Jesus Christ. And then when you saw it, you beheld it, and you ran to it, and you embraced it, and you followed Jesus Christ. That doesn't take away from your free will. That doesn't violate man's free will. And because God does not violate man's free will is the reason why those who do not believe are condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Right? Jesus Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but those who don't believe, it says, are condemned already. That means that there is already a sentence of condemnation hanging over the head of every person who does not believe in Jesus Christ, and to not believe in the Savior only compounds their guilt. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, provides a helpful analogy. He says that, um, he says that it's like the arrogant critic who mocks a masterpiece. It's not the masterpiece that's condemned, but it's the critic. Right? So it's just like uh, uh, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel or Leonardo's The Mona Lisa or Beethoven's The uh, Symphony Number no. 5, right? And the critic who mocks, who arrogantly mocks it over and over again, the, the, the masterpiece is not condemned, but it's the critic who shows himself to be a fool and con continues to condemn that which is accepted as a masterpiece. And so there's the sentence of condemnation already. At this point, knowing that our souls are at stake, verse 18, what it does for us is that it rejects a passive faith. Right, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's not calling for a passive faith. A passive faith is just an idle faith. It's a faith that doesn't believe, that doesn't love the Lord, his God, like he should, or love his people like he should. An idle faith or a passive faith is a faith that will not vigorously fight against sin to conquer it. That kind of faith will not lead to eternal life. It's not the kind of faith that we're called to have. A passive faith doesn't work. But a persevering faith is what works. Say, for example, you're going on a month-long vacation a year from now. Right? You, you booked your plane tickets. You know exactly where you're staying. You already requested the days off from work, and it got approved. Right? So in that per from that perspective, your, your, your vacation is already guaranteed. Now, do you kind of just wait there and just sit idly by and wait for a year to come around for your vacation to come? No. You're going to work until then, right? You've got to set things in order at your, at your work to make sure that things are taken care of. You're going to probably try to find somebody who will you trustworthy to take care of your home, to look into it while you're away. You're perhaps probably spending some money in order to, to buy some clothes or, or saving some money to get yourself ready for that vacation, right? But the point is, is that you're working yourself to get ready for that vacation. That's what a persevering faith looks like. It looks forward to eternity, 
And in the meantime, however, they abide in the love of God, they love the brethren, and they work hard at getting ready to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not based on works. You're not working your way to, to earn your way there. You already, it's already there. It's already yours through faith in Christ, but you're working your way to prepare yourself to get there. If anyone desires to be spared of God's condemnation, then he must believe in the Son. He must choose to love the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, mind, and strength. God did not send his Son into the world so that people would just have an intellectual knowledge of the Lord, not merely anyway. Neither did God send his Son into the world so that the world would continue to live as it well pleases. God sent his son into the world so that the world would choose to love him in return, to place their faith in him. And faith communicates a love for God. So, so far, we see from the passage that God's condemnation is upon the world. But he so loved the world that he gave his only son to save the world from that condemnation. And lastly, we see God's light to the world. Verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son the Son who is the light of the world. That's how the author describes Jesus, as the light. For example, in John 1, 4, talking about Jesus, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, that is Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. God sent the light of the world into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Yet the response is not favorable. In fact, it's actually quite shocking. Rather than embracing the light, it says they actually hate the light. Therefore, God's condemnation of the world is based on this fact, that the people loved the darkness rather than the light. If you read that passage in John 3, in John 3, 18, or rather 19, just replace light with Jesus. It would read like this, and this is the judgment, that Jesus has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than Jesus because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates Jesus and does not come to Jesus, lest his works should be exposed. And this reaction on the part of the world is much more than just a passive or casual acceptance of their present condition or a passive or casual acceptance of the darkness, but rather the fact that it says that, they, that the world loved the darkness shows that this is an active and embracing and passionate love of the darkness, right? Because you're not casual about something you love. You're passionate about the things that you love. You're excited about the things that you love, and that's how 
John is describing the world's love for darkness. There's nothing casual about it. So then when the light appeal appears, people are repelled by it. Why? Because it says the works were evil. In some cases, evil is narrowly defined in the scriptures, but in this case, it's much more broadly defined. In fact, in the gospel of John, the world is never a good thing. In fact, in most of the New Testament, the world is never, ever described in a positive manner. So here's defined much more broadly. Evil is anything that is not born out of a love for God or done in response to God's love. I read somewhere that evil is anything that is not in harmony with the divine order or will of God. And there is nothing more misaligned than the human heart. That's why even a good person, according to societal standards, can still be described as evil. So take, for example, Matthew 7, verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? What an encouraging passage. But it's something we need to understand from this passage that helps us to understand better the human condition. Right, he talks about a father who has a son and asks for bread. The father is not going to give his son a serpent, will give him a bread, right? Because he's a good father. But then Jesus describes that same good father as one who is evil, but that is in comparison to God. In comparison to God, well, then we are all evil because God is love and God is good. He's a definition of good, and there is no one who is good besides God. Man was created with a heart for God, to live for him, to work for him, to live his life in honor for God, and it's his greatest, it should be his greatest joy and satisfaction and pleasure to live for the glory of God. But as he became sinful and his heart was misaligned by his sin, he kind of bent inward like a rod of iron so that when the light shines, when Jesus comes, that rod of iron resists its being bent straight. Yesterday, just yesterday, I was walking, my family and I were walking back to our cars and uh, Kaylin had Kendallin and Elena was right beside me. We were all walking to the car and Elena suddenly trips, and she uh, falls, and she scrapes her knees on the asphalt, and she gets up, she cries, and she comes to dad. And so, but, and at the same time, as that's happening, there's a, a complete stranger who's walking by. Now, why did she go to me and not to this complete stranger? And the answer is obvious, because I'm her father, or because she expects that her father is going to love her, that her father is going to take care of her, that her father is going to pick her up and help her. She doesn't have that expectation for the stranger. And so it's incredible that at three years old, she can understand that she expects her father to pick her up and to help her, and she will not go to a complete stranger. I mean, I would be offended and saddened if she did go to a complete stranger rather than her own father. But just think about that when you think about John 3.16. God shows the ultimate display of his love to the world when he gives his son 
And the expectation is that all men would run to the light, that they would run to Jesus. And instead, people run in the other direction. They run to complete strangers, like wealth, status, and prestige, money, and sex, and alcohol, and drugs, maybe even good things, like family, and friends, and fellowship, but they're still not the right things that they should be running to. So then as glorious as John 3.16 is, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a wonderful passage. But as wonderful as that passage is, by the time we, we get through verse 20, we understand that man's response is not favorable. It is actually quite shocking that God would send his son to the world, to a world that would hate him and crucify him, a world filled with sin. The most pressing question that should be in our minds at this point is why does God save anyone at all? Why does God save anyone at all? We praise the Lord that he does. We worship and we are thankful that he does. Oh man, I'm so thankful that he does. Right, because none of us deserved it. We did not earn it. We could never earn it. Even when we are so sinful, he sent his son to die for us so that we may have life by believing in his name. That's amazing. It's even scandalous. God would love us to such, an ex- such extremes that his son would die for us. Passage continues, says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Those who do wicked deeds hate the light and hate its exposure. That doesn't mean that the world does only wicked things in secret because you and I know that there are plenty of people in the world who do wicked things in public. Rather, the passage means that the world does not want the divine creator and the eternal lawgiver to expose their wickedness. They don't want his standard to shine brightly upon their lives and show them how far they have missed the mark. Darkness is always most comfortable in its own darkness. But when the light comes, it comes not to abide with the darkness, but to overcome and to overpower and to erase the darkness. And those who are overcome by the light are transformed into those who walk in the light. Verse 21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The point of the verse is not so much to tell us the process by which come, what, by a person comes to light and gradually moves into darkness, but rather it's meant to tell us a, about a, a, the stark contrast between darkness and light. Even though the first work of those who are light or who are in the process of, beco- of coming into the light is faith. St. Augustine once said that to do the truth means to acknowledge that we are miserable and destitute of all power of doing good. If anyone would desire to be saved from perishing, you have to come to the end of yourself. You must acknowledge the fact that your good works are no good at all in the sight of God, not from an eternal perspective. And that's because your heart is misaligned. It's like having a car, a perfectly good working car with a damaged frame. 
right? You can get the oil changes, you can change the tires, you can change the brakes, you can do the, the, the routine maintenance, but as long as you have a car with a damaged frame, it's a bad car. And the longer you drive it, the longer you are in danger. And the only solution is not to try to fix it, but the only solution is to replace it. And that is why one must be born again, because the old will not cut it. You must become new. You must be reborn by the Spirit of God, by believing in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sin. So if you have yet to make that decision, come to the light. Follow Jesus. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sin. And he will give you the Holy Spirit of God. And through the Holy Spirit, you'll be regenerated. You'll be reborn, created new so that you will love the Lord your God like he made you to. The difference between those who are in the dark, according to the passage, and those who are in the light is that those who are in the light have their works carried out in God. And that leads to a, a concluding thought. And that is perform works that are carried out in God for assurance. So we come to the end of this passage, this section. Right, so how does one who believe in Jesus Christ, who has followed Jesus Christ, who has reciprocated that love of God displayed and is giving his son, how does that person become assured of his salvation? Well, it tells you, those who are in the light have their works carried out in God. That is that your works are carried out, are performed by the Spirit of God. And so again, this calls us to assurance. God has given us a way that we may be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is by our works. It's not our works that we, are, that we intend to do in order to earn God's favor, but because we have already been given God's favor, because we've already received God's love and reciprocated that love by believing in Jesus, then we, we do works in response to God's love. Right, John 14 and John 15 tells us that if you love me, you will do my commandments. That is how you show that you love the Lord your God. Right? So this speaks against nominal Christianity, those who are only Christians in name. But the passage calls us to a radical faith, not even just a radical faith, but this is a normal faith. This is how the scriptures describe it, that those who believe in Jesus by their lives, it is evident that they believe in Jesus. And that means loving the Lord your God, loving his people. That's what it looks like. And you can be encouraged, right? Because even when, and it's not to, it's, it's not to make a list, right? And, and to and kind of compare yourself, you know, how many sins have I done today and how many good works have I done today? It's not that. But it's about loving God and loving the brethren. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. Because even when we sin, even when we do make mistakes, even when we do things that are wrong, right, a good work out of that is repentance, confession of sin, and turning away from those sins. Right, we may not, the Lord ultimately knows who are his, who is written in the book of life. But in this side of life, right, he's given us a measure of assurance, and that is by continuing to please the Lord, by continuing to live for him, by continuing to do things to his glory. That is how we do these works that are carried out in God.
and they only come from having the Spirit of God in you. And so you can be encouraged to know that the Lord wants you to know that He wants you to be assured of your salvation. He wants you to rest secure in His salvation. Right? Because sometimes we might question, but look at this passage. Be reminded of what God has done for you. I would encourage you just to look at your life, look at your testimony. What were you like before you came to Christ, and what are you, and what's different now? Because only Jesus could have made such a radical transformation in your life. So we come to this passage, or we end this passage, hopefully with, with some encouragement. Right, because by any standard, we did not deserve God's love. There's nothing about us that God said when he looked at us, this person deserves my love. But it was quite the opposite. And yet he sent his son to die for us so that we may have eternal life in his name and so that we can live the rest of our lives in a confident manner about our assurance of our salvation. So continue to trust in the Lord. Continue to place your confidence in Jesus Christ. Only in him are you standing in a rock-solid foundation. And don't forget, don't forget the person that you were once before, because that can be encouragement to you today to continue to pursue the Lord and assurance of your salvation. And continue to praise the Lord. Continue to remind yourself of the gospel. Don't ever get tired of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, you are our Savior, and we, we thank you, God. Father, I pray that you would help us to never forget the gospel, to never forget how it has transformed our lives. I pray that you would continue to encourage your saints through the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we worship you. May we also use this life that you have given us, however, whatever, however time we, had, we have left, that we use that time in order to prepare ourselves to spend eternity with you, to worship you, and to thank you, and to live for you. We love you, Lord. And may we never get tired of saying that. And may we never get tired of hearing that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.